1: You know, after finding him and my mother and I called an ambulance and and rode to the hospital and from the hospital, not knowing what was going to be the outcome, just stunned and shocked as a 13 year old kid calling my grandmother on the phone because my mother was with the doctors figuring out what was happening. And I tried speaking and she answered the phone and I can still hear her voice answering the phone. In my head to this day and my mouth was moving and I was saying the words and nothing would come out not a single word and I remember looking around you know the hospital room where we were outside the emergency room and all these faces staring at this little 13 year old kid with you know tears streaming down his face and I I remember the shirt that I was wearing and just thinking myself why won't these damn words come I could not speak even though I was mouthing the words And, and you know what you know trauma has strange and powerful impacts, I had literally lost very short term the power of speech right then and there. I came back and I was, I'm sure, speaking later that evening, certainly the next day, and I don't think I've shut up since.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Drew, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Appreciate you having me, man. Good stuff. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you by way of your publicist who wrote me a letter. And usually I hate those galley letters because I pretty much ignore them. And then I saw that you had written a book about, you know, having all these tattoos all over your body as the story they told. And I was like, well, I just got my first tattoo, so I definitely want to talk to this guy. Um, But before we get into all of that, uh, I wanted to start by asking you a question that is kind of relevant to your book. And that is, what is one of the most important things that you learned from your father that have
1: influenced and shaped who you've become? Uh, And what you've ended up doing with your life from my father, man, that's, you know, narrowing it down to one is, uh, is, is a tough one. So I, I, I'll, I'll throw one out. I can't, I don't know that it's, I'm able to pick the one of all of them. I learned so many different things and you know, actually, you know, as you know from reading the book, the chapter about my dad, I refer to him as uh, you know as my 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 greatest friend and foe. So obviously, it's a complex relationship. Um, I, certainly, one of the things, one of the best things I learned from him is 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 loyalty. Uh, towards your, your, your people, your tribe, uh, be it your family, the people that you work with your team, whoever you choose and are fortunate to have in your inner circle. Um, you know, your, your, that, that is, that is your everything. And that's something that was unbreakable within him. And I feel very fortunate to have had that lesson from an early age. And I I think the best lessons in life, at least for me, are the ones that are not taught as a lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never been one, you know, I, I never do well with education. I prefer more information, especially when it's shared in a real-life way. So my father was never the type to sit down and say, you know, father-son lesson number one, loyalty, here's Mm -hmm. what that means, and walk through. It wasn't. He just lived his life how he believed. And when you were around him, as I was obviously growing up, he was my dad, I was able to watch and observe these things in the way that he lived his life and and how he treated the people around him. And that's where I absorbed and soaked up what what loyalty uh, really was.
0: Yeah, I I think that the more that I I dove into this book, I almost felt like this was an attempt to reconcile your relationship with your father more than it was a book about tattoos. Like, I felt like this was kind of the things you'd been wanting to tell your father all along.
1: I think you definitely hit that part on the head for sure. It was a lot of reconciliation. It was, you know, the relationship uh, and dynamic with my father for sure is a is a big part of it. And I think once you start to dive into that, you're reconciling so many other things about yourself. Because certainly relationships between fathers and sons are very impactful, whether they're good, bad, mixed, whatever they are. I I even say, even if you don't grow up with a father or have a father in your life, that still impacts your life dramatically. Um, And who the person you are, who the man you grow into, who the father you will become, assuming you become a father. So all of those things, you know, kind of spring off and start to go down all of these different vines and funnels, which then open up other things that, you know, as you get, you know, I'm 50 now, you start to want to, I don't even know if it's reconciliation as much as understanding, coming to terms with, um, and even if it's not finding complete peace um, or resolution, I, I think for me at least, finding an understanding of why certain things were the way they were does, at least for me, bring me some level of, of peace and, and comfort in my own skin and more, more clarity in moving forward in life. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: you know, like I said, I mean, there are so many things about your father that struck me in this book. And you say that my father was the simplest and most complicated person rolled into one fiercely loyal and unapologetically short-tempered, you could always feel his presence when he walked into a room. <laughs> Whether he's knocking someone out cold at a casino table in Atlantic City or throwing punches on an airplane on a family flight for to Las Vegas for Thanksgiving, if you pushed his buttons, he was going to light up. I, I had to ask you about it. I mean, how did that play out in the <laughs> relationship between the two of you, like having this incredibly short-tempered father?
1: Yeah, that's, well... Thank you for reading the book. You clearly have. <laughs> you got it down. Um, you know, there's pros and cons with everything. There really are. And and one of the other things I talk about in the book a lot is being a victim or a survivor, and that's a mindset. And I, I, I've come to look at, you know, a lot of the traits and things about my father as, as beneficial and things that I've chosen to use in a positive way in life. And there are benefits uh, to not getting caught up in nonsense or BS, and that was a benefit to my father. Um, he wasn't someone that you were going to string along for, you know, hours and days and weeks, whether it was something in a personal family relation or in a business matter. And that was very helpful. It helped me in my, in my own life, relationships. If someone was taking advantage of me in business, you know, if someone was stringing something along. Now I realized that. The, the term short tempered isn't always considered or often considered a great quality. And, and I would agree that it's not, but it was something that I, I at least learned early on to stay away from all of the fluff and nonsense and cut to the chase. Um, and, you know, do I wish that at times in our life, he demonstrated more patience uh, and and the willingness to talk certain things through of course but at the same point I have four kids um, three of them very young and every night that I you know put them to sleep afterwards I say to myself I wish I demonstrated more patience just now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with three little kids so you start to show a little bit more grace to the things that you were disappointed in yeah. with your own parents and you realize that life wasn't always as simple and obvious to them as it was to a kid growing up and they made the best choices that they could uh, just as you're going through right now as a parent and and hopefully you know my kids will uh show a little grace towards some of the things that I could have shown a little more patience towards despite my best efforts
0: yeah you know, it's funny you say that because uh there my sister just had a baby so I'm very curious to see what this is going to be like with my mother because she and her husband are coming home for her maternity leave because she has like four months off. And I, you know, remember when my grandmother was staying with us for about a month and a half and I saw the interactions between her and my mom was like, holy shit. I'm like, all the things that make me crazy about you, your mom does to you, you
1: know? It's, like the apple does not fall far from no, the tree. No, it
0: really doesn't. It, it it's kind of mind-boggling. I I mean, I'm not a parent so I've always wondered about, you know, what I'm going to be like. Like because I think every kid par- buddy swears oh, I'm not going to do all those things my parents did. not I've asked friends like do you ever find yourself feeling like you're literally just echoing the things your parents said to you and they're like, "Yes." When you're oh, talking,
1: I, I- I have people who say to me who, who knew my dad or who've read the book and would sit there and, and, and they will say, you realize so many of these things you do in everyday life or your personality or your sarcasm or your, your temper at times. I'll be like, what, what are you talking about? You know, and, uh, you know, that's, look, that's one of the best parts about writing the book. I, I've said before that, you know, uh, whether we sell five copies or, or a million and, uh, I don't really have any, any... Predictions or mindset towards it either way. Obviously, I'd like to sell some copies, but at the end of the day, I, I really wrote this for myself, for my own. Uh, whether you want, I don't use the word therapy that much; just doesn't necessarily flow off my tongue. It's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, and would encourage people, you know, to pursue it. But it's just not the word that I use. I, I you'd think more in terms of self help or self analyzing, and that's what this book was for me. You can't sit down and write an entire book about, you know, your early childhood up through age 50, if you're being honest and real with yourself uh, and not walk away and at times say, holy, you know, blank. Wow. Um, who is this person? And you're like, wow, it's me. Okay. Mm-hmm
3: PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
0: One of the things that you say in the book is, I think at times my father had a genuine desire to make things right with, uh, the, with the past with me, especially in the years right after his first suicide attempt. But he had a limited capacity to address it. His darker angels would get the best of his better angels uh, on this topic always. And you know, I know you alluded to the Anthony Bourdain suicide throughout the book. Like, I mean, at that age, I mean, I, if I remember correctly, you were thirteen years old on that first attempt. I mean, what is it that led to that? And what decisions did you make about how you would live your life going forward based on that experience?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in that question uh, to unpack there, which, by the way, the word unpacked is something I picked up from doing all these podcasts for the book. It was never in my vocabulary. (laughs) I think this is about the seventh podcast that we've done in the last uh, uh, 10 days. And every person.
0: Somehow I, I end up getting people to unpack. Way more than they came, they were thinking they
1: were going to. Well, every interview who read the book goes, Okay, Drew, read the book. There's a lot to unpack there. And now, now, now I'm using it myself. So we're all creatures of habit, but not a bad, but not a bad term. But, yeah. you know, on, on the one part, you know, what led up to his, his first attempted suicide, and, and you're correct, it was, he was, uh, I was 13 and I, I, I had walked in and, and you know, found him. I can't really. Know that what was specifically inside his head, obviously there were challenges and and struggles you know in his life um there were certainly dynamics in the family that I lived there, and I saw those things, so it wasn 't always you know the calmest, most copacetic environment at home um with 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 him and my mom but you know work stresses life stresses and and again probably certainly a lot of things that i don't know and would never know that you know you're 13 um uh, you know you just don't know everything or most things that are happening in your parents lives you know i have a 15 year old daughter um and uh, you know I'm sure she thinks I'm the simplest, you know, uh, person in the world to figure out. I'm dad. I'm the ATM machine. Uh, <laughs> you know, I said to her one year, you know, for Halloween, why don't I just dress up as an ATM? You say, hi, daddy. And I spit out 20s. And she goes, why would you do that? That's your costume every day, daddy. <laughs> you <laughs> so you're like, OK, um, but but, you know, so I don't I can't really speak to the exact thing. Obviously, there is a ton of hurt and 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 pain. Um, as far as, um, myself and how it really impacted me, which I didn't know until I really wrote this book, this is one of the biggest revelations in writing the book and I'm certain of it. Is And I I mentioned in the book that, you know, after finding him and my mother and I called an ambulance and, and rode to the hospital and from the hospital, not knowing what was going to be the outcome, just stunned and shocked as a 13 year old kid calling my grandmother on the phone because my mother was with the doctors figuring out what was happening. And I tried speaking and she answered the phone and I can still hear her voice answering the phone in my head to this day and my mouth was moving and I was saying the words and nothing would come out not a single word and I remember looking around you know the hospital room where we were outside the emergency room and all these faces staring at this little 13 year old kid with you know tears streaming down his face and I I remember the shirt that I was wearing and just thinking myself why won't these damn words come I could not speak even though I was mouthing the words And, and you know what you know trauma has strange and powerful impacts i had literally lost very short term the power of speech right then and there i came back and i was i'm sure speaking later that evening certainly the next day and i don't think i've shut up since um but what i really ended up doing to your question of how did it affect me is i certainly built a very big wall around my you know innermost uh Uh, feelings and sensitivities, almost intentionally numbing, blocking, uh, you know, in the sense that, you know, the tears streaming down my face when I was 13, I I did not cry again another tear for, you know, 30, 40 plus years later. Um, And it's not because I wasn't around scenarios that warranted it. Um, I very deliberately wouldn't allow that. Um, was not going to allow myself to be that hurt or traumatized by anything again. I, I suspect.
0: Well, I, I think that <clears throat> this is such an important conversation that we kind of tend to brush into the dark. I mean, in in the Indian community, in the community I grew up in, mental health was just not something you talked about, you know, until we started to see, you know, this next generation, you know, friends going to therapy. Uh, yeah, when I finally landed in therapy, I'm like, what the hell took me so long to get here. And yeah, you having a 15 a year old daughter, having had this experience with your father and seeing sort of what teenage girls are going through, you know, with these sort of Snapchat filters. I hear plastic surgeons literally are getting 15 year old girls coming to them, like, I want you to make me look more like my Instagram filters. And I was it, like, I downloaded a few of these different apps just to see what was possible. You know, it's like Eye Lift. And I was like, this is really scary. Uh, I mean, it's great if you're an adult who's secure in your self-image, but when you're that young and vulnerable, you're so insecure already. Like, I would never want to be a teenager again. And yet, I feel like it's only when we have sort of a high-profile Anthony Bourdain-type suicide then we have this conversation. And then it gets brushed on the rug. Or a Silicon Valley super founder kills himself. And then everybody's like, oh, we need to talk about this. But then it just goes away. Uh And I feel like it's one of those things that we should be taught so much earlier in life is, is how to deal with our emotions, how to process them. I mean, as a father, what do you think that we should be teaching our kids about mental health that we don't?
1: I, I I think it's a critical question you bring up, and it also has to do with why I actually wrote the book. Um, there, so there's really two parts of it. One is as a father and, and how I think it's important to speak to young people, including my own kids, but but people in general, young people and and old, and everyone, the stigma of, of mental health issues and how we even refer to them and phrase them and and certainly the topic of suicide one of the hardest things that impacted me my my life growing up is that, you know, it was not a topic to be discussed. And, and right off the bat within our family, and I don't blame my mother for this or anyone else or my father for, you know, making it clear that this is never to be discussed. What It just wasn't. It wasn't the type of thing that would be discussed. And if you did and shared it with your 13-year-old friends or your teacher at school, there was no reason to believe that that would have been a comfortable space. You would have instantly felt, you know, ostracized or, you know, like you were condemning your own family is messed up or something it just was it was not something whatsoever that would be discussed and and I think we're first starting in society barely now. Uh, as a whole, to break through that taboo. And, and to your point, it is unfortunate that one of the only times it really gets the attention it seems to deserve is when there's high-profile suicides, be it Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade, who who committed suicide the day before, Robin mm-hmm. Williams, obviously, and, and you know, uh, recently the, I saw one of the executives of Bed Bath & Beyond committed suicide. And, you know, you sit there and you say, how many you know thousands of people a day commit suicide, I think statistically it's the third uh, cause of death um, in in America in certain categories at this point and rising. And and yet, it only makes a headline if it's somebody that the media can tag on some type of title that people might stop and look. Uh, mm-hmm. Versus if it was an everyday person that nobody knew about who who committed suicide. And the reality is, it's heartbreaking and tragic across the board. And you know what I hope people realize too, uh, in in doing this book, quite frankly, is is twofold. Is one, I, I very much do not want to see. Other kids, 13 or or whatever age, um, or adults, who have a family member who try to kill themselves or successfully do kill themselves. That's a weird coin of phrase, successfully killing oneself. But, uh, um, you know, feel the uh, isolation, I would say that I experienced. And, and isolation can do a lot of strange things with the mind uh, when such a massive, massive topic is not addressed, opened up, discussed on deep, deep levels. And when you don't discuss it all and just keep it inside, you know, that's that's a boiling pot, man. And at some point that lid's going to come off. So there's that part of it. But on the other part of it, I think it's critical for people to realize that suicide is something that does not only impact the person who is suffering, who either kills himself or tries to kill himself, but the impact that has on their entire family, their spouse and significant other, their children. And especially if the person does end up killing themselves, you know, the the people left behind. um, And I don't see it in terms of mean-spirited or selfish. I think I used to. I had that anger and resentment towards my father for for that for the decision he made but as i got older and and uh more aware and read more and listened more and soaked it all in i realized obviously the pain and hurt and suffering that someone who does that is going through that they're not making rational decisions they're hurting terribly mm-hmm. And their goal is not to add pain to the people that they're leaving behind. Their their immediate goal is to end their own pain. And that in itself is such a a tragic and sad reality that it it, it takes my emotions at least from anger and resentment towards that topic of there's so much that can be done all around to prevent people from making that decision in the first place, supporting the families, the children, the spouses, the significant others of the people that do make that choice and focus on what can be done versus in the after fact of, of pointing fingers and making absurd comments. You know, you read these comments about, um, you know, this person was selfish and how could they do that and what have you. And I, I just don't, buy into that i don't think that that's the psychology of of people who generally make that awful decision yeah but
0: you you say in the book had my father not killed himself and instead we met for beers one day and reconciled before he eventually died of a heart attack or freak accident in our old age our story would have a drastically different ending the way those final minutes played out will forever alter the way i look at the entirety of our relationship so often when someone exits under exceptionally difficult circumstances you don't just mourn the parent you lost. You mourn the history that will never exist. And I think that, that that's one of those things. Like, I, I I feel like losing a parent, regardless of the circumstances under which it happens, is not something that any of us can prepare for. And yet, I feel like it's just an inevitable reality of life. I've talked to so many people about this. And anytime I ask them about this, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that there's a book that you can read for this one. Like, I it's to me, it feels like one of those experiences regardless of the circumstances it's that you can never possibly understand until you experience it yourself.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it, it is surreal at times. And again, I think it goes back to victims and survivors mentality versus is the situation going to own you for the rest of your life or are you going to find ways at some point, it takes some time to get to that point, of course. But are you going to find ways to use that tragedy, that horrific experience, not only to helping others, but when you, I, I've found, and others have that when you help others, you really are helping yourself in that way. Um, and 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 for me, that's that's been, you know, being more aware of a friend who maybe hurting very badly and not just wrapping up a text or a phone call saying, okay, see you tomorrow, bud, but realizing maybe I should stay on the line a little bit longer or, you know, so-and-so has been having a hard time lately. I've seen the last few social media posts he did. We haven't spoken in a while. Um, Maybe I should drop him a line and just let him know how much I'm thinking about him and what a special person he is. And, you know, that, that, that's something that I've taken away and been able to do. I have spoken to friends that, or or even colleagues or associates that weren't close friends, but I genuinely thought might be on the edge and have shared with them my own situation, which I think caught them very off guard because especially when you're not close with someone, uh, for someone to share something so personal. And they would say, why are you sharing that with me? And I would say, because you have kids and I know that you love your kids very much. And I would say... You know, if a car was running or racing towards your kid and your kid was standing in the street, would you jump in front of the car for them? And they'd say, of course. And I'd say, well, then if you're that car that's racing towards your kid, if you're thinking of killing yourself or, or, or you know, then you are that car, uh, racing towards your kid. That's the damage you're leaving behind. Um, don't do it, you know, save them, protect them, get out of your own way. Um, and I've had that conversation with, with quite a few people and it has always been received, uh, extremely, extremely positively and as intended. And I, it, I think it has, has had some important impact. You know, they, there's, uh, it this is not giving people ideas they 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 know if someone is is set on taking their life they have no shortage of ways to do it um obviously the golden gate bridge in san francisco is, has been a Somewhat notorious place for for people uh, committing suicide or attempting, and there 's something about the height of the bridge, the currents, what have you that that a very small handful of people have actually survived the vast majority have died, and it 's a very brutal death in a lot of ways, um, but there are a small handful of people that have survived, and you can actually see some of the interviews of the people who survived and uh, experts and mental health professionals have interviewed these people because it's a very fascinating phenomenon. There's a limited amount of people that you can interview and really get information of what was going through your mind beforehand. What could someone have said that might've changed your mind? What would have changed that day? Um, You know, because if you can get inside the mind of someone right before they take such uh, dramatic, no-turning-back action, then there's a chance to help them and say the right things that prevent it from happening in the first place. And the one thing that the people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived, that they all had in common, and there's an interview on YouTube with one of the guys in particular, and it's beyond compelling. I, I probably watched it 15 times from beginning to end, and he says that from the moment he, he could not get out of his head. I need to die. I need, I need, this is it. I'm in such pain. I'm in such pain. He dealt with lifelong depression, lots of issues. And I mean, he could not have been more certain about what his need, it was a need for him to end his life, to get to the top of the bridge, to jump off. And And then he describes from the moment, the instant, his last finger slipped away from the bridge and he was actually past the point of no return in that instant it was what have I done I wish I could take it back this is not what I want to do and that was going through his mind which is a god awful thing to imagine all the way down uh, which is a fairly lengthy time to think about it until he hit the water and it was a brutal impact and thankfully he lived and had obviously a lot of serious injuries but the fact of the matter is that people are in such an emotional uh in such emotional despair um whether it's young people or older people when they're making that decision that that if they could just get a break in the clouds for a minute which is why I say to your question if my dad and I had just sat down for beers or something in that window or if something had happened that that broke whatever intensity was in him that made him commit to this is it. I'm done. I'm out of here. If something could have interrupted that trade of thought for a moment, uh, there's certainly a chance that, that it wouldn't have happened. Um, maybe it would have happened the next day, the next week, the next month. I, I can't look into the future, but obviously the, the goal would be, you know, stop something whenever you can. And that's, that's the thing that always fascinated me. And I've read, A lot about suicides, methods that people use to kill themselves. And there's a whole psychology. It's not exactly the most uplifting reading. Um, It's not something that you probably want to read about and and put yourself in a great mood and then want to go out dancing with your friends. But if you have that need for understanding or information like I have and do, uh, you read about it and you even read about, you know, the different psychology that in many ways, can impact the methods in which people choose to attempt suicide. And, you know, look, the more that we learn and the more that we understand, the more that we can actually help and make a difference in in everyone's life because this is an issue that can affect every single human being. It It simply does, whether it's your own issues and your own problems that put you at risk or your family members and the loved ones around you. There is no one who is immune to this.
4: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
3: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care.
0: you know, I think that as as weird as it might sound, that makes a perfect segue into talking about your tattoos. Uh, because like I said, what got my attention about your story was that I had just gotten my first tattoo. And one of the things that you say at the very beginning of the book is many of my tattoos started small and grew or morphed over time, merging and co across my body, forming new unplanned channels of connection. As a result, I can't and won't count my tattoos. They don't operate in isolation any more than my organs do. They're a single singular, elaborate system that makes the invisible parts of my life visible to others, yes, but most importantly to me. And you say, whenever I experience a setback, fresh ink is my way of taking back control and rewriting my ever-evolving redemption story. Uh, so talk to me about uh, the role, the, the the how these setbacks play a role in tattoos and, and you know, give us an idea, because I think that the, the sort of perception that most of us have of somebody who's as inked as you are is like, Oh, that guy's going to kill me if I go off and talk to him. Like, if I saw you in a bar and I hadn't read your book, I'd be like, holy shit, that guy looks scary.
1: <laughs> I get that at times. And as you know, I remember the breastfeeding
0: group thing you said, like when you showed up at that woman's house.
1: Yeah. Well, just to clarify, I just want to make sure that your listeners on, you probably have to take that one a little further. Yeah, we need to give them the context. One of my, one of my newborn babies, uh, needed breast milk. Uh, and, uh, since we did, we did not have the ability to provide that milk naturally, I joined a, uh, a, a mom, mommy's, uh, breast milk, uh, donation group where very kindly moms who are milking and, 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 making extra donated to people who need. Uh, And I guess my name, Drew, can be a guy or a girl's name. I don't know, but apparently I'm the only male who ever joined this local group. So when I showed up with my empty milk carton and a cigar in my mouth and my pajamas in early morning, 6 a.m., and my beard and my tattoos and my flip-flops with a jug at the door ready for my milk, uh, yeah, she was not, I was not with this sweet, kind milk-donating lactating mama was expecting and man she let out a scream
0: (laughs) Uh, well so now that people have the context uh, about that (laughs) talk to me about sort of tattoos as a form of telling your life story because i mean it seems you know to me like your tattoos are really the story of your life and i like i said i mean part of the reason i chose the tattoo that i did was it, it literally is the the most important reminder i needed on a constant basis for my mentor
1: well it's exactly right and and everybody has their own methodology for their tattoos and I really Go out of my way to be non-judgmental. It's it's you know art is subjective. Tattoos are art, and you can walk into someone's house and see a fifty-dollar uh, framing uh, of a print they got at a flea market, and and you might like that more and feel more moved by that than a ten million-dollar Picasso in a museum. And the answer is that's exactly right. Whatever you feel, what moves you, what you connect with, that's that's good art. That's the best art in the world. What works for you. So for me, uh, symbolism has always been very important tattoos out of the gate from my very first one, uh, or almost what I refer to as my own type of therapy. I refer to myself as a giant post-it note, my own reminders, things that were important to me, uh, to know about myself, to remind myself, to not forget. I always, I realize now I've had a deep down fear of, of not living to my potential, of not being the type of person that I feel I need to be, should be, not just for myself, but for others. Um, I don't want to fall into traps that are very easy to fall into uh, for humans in general, and certainly for myself, um, bad habits and, and things of that nature. So what I ended up finding almost non-deliberately is that the designs and pieces that I've been drawn to uh, are always symbolic um, and, and not the most obvious in the world to someone just passing by or, or looking from a distance, but also have a deep, profound meaning to me. And, and that's why, you know, I, I say that I've always had, you know, five, 10 different concepts or designs floating around my mind at one point or another. And sometimes a tattoo that I get done might have been on my mind for five, 10 years. And I've just haven't figured out what that actual visual is or who the artist is is or where to get it done on my body, and sometimes I'll have a a concept that I I will feel so strongly about that two weeks after I think of it, I'm getting the tattoo done. Um, But the thing that they have in common always is that they're really a message to me. Um, I I I do refer to myself jokingly but true as as a very selfish tattoo collector. Um, and I say that even because people would always say, "Wow, when are you going to get some on your back?" You know, my arms would be completely covered, my neck, my hands, my fingers, most of my front. And it was just actually this last week I did a a marathon two day uh tattoo piece on half of my back with a phenomenal phenomenal artist. I actually traveled to Hawaii. To film and get the tattoo with this artist because they're they're that special of an artist and the work they do, but it was you know two days back to back, almost sixteen hours of tattooing of a piece on my back and. People, say, wow, that's amazing! You know, why did you wait so long to do your back? And I say, I'm selfish. I can't see my back. <laughs> you know, it's a great piece, but I walk into the room. I can't look down at my arms. I can't look in the mirror and see my back. And you know, my tattoos are really for me to look at and and learn from and remind myself daily. They're kind of my daily mantras. They're my, you know, even as I look down at my arms and hands now, speaking to you, you know, my left hand says tribe. You know, it's a reminder of, of taking care of everybody in my inner circle. Um, I have references to my kids. I have, um, you know, a panda on my pinky because my 15 year old loves pandas and it means so much to me. Um, I have, you know, Greek, Greek, quotes from Pericles on my arms in Greek that are uh, quotes of his that are very, you know, important to me. Um, Again, someone walking down the street is not going to look at my forearm and see the Greek lettering and have any idea what that means. But to me, I look down at it, and it's the the quote from Pericles where he says, uh, what you uh, leave behind is not carved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. And to me, that is a very clear, critical reminder daily of that this life is not about me. It's what I weave into the lives of my children my associates the people i have known for years and those that i may not even meet until tomorrow but that is you know the purpose of living is to leave the world a better place than you found it and you know that does not come across to a stranger looking at some jumbled greek letters on on some big six foot four 250 pound bearded dudes uh forearm so that that's for me that's not for other people um And all of my tattoos, you know, I have Indian Sanskrit um, on my arm. I have uh, written, um, you know, learn from yesterday, live for today, hope for tomorrow. Um, You know, again, I don't expect many people walking down the street to come up to me and read Sanskrit and understand that. Although when you travel or, you know, wherever, if I'm in an airport or something, it is always fun occasionally because I have probably seven or eight different languages and different tattoos where someone who does speak Greek or does read and understand Sanskrit or amharic will come up and read a tattoo on my arm. And, and that's always kind of fun for both of us.
4: Yeah.
1: Wow.
0: So you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, you served in the military, right? No, I did not. I, oh, was, you know what? People, I know People tend
1: a, to think that, but yeah, you I, I, know what it is I think there
0: were like these, it's because I had this stupid, um, the net galley version of it where the formatting is all screwed up because you seem to have these vignettes of other people's stories in there too right
1: and, and we do have a guy uh, clint emerson okay. who was yeah Navy team six
0: okay that's where my, my confusion was sorry about that well you know the the thing that actually i wanted to talk about was the fact that you have adopted children and i think in particular this is the thing that stood out to me you say that so adopting a black child did not give me any pause or hesitation whatsoever But that doesn't mean it didn't affect them. When Zoe was six or seven, she came home from school one day and asked me if we were a biracial family. It was, honest to God, the first time I ever realized that from a terminology perspective, I guess we were. But then I told her I never thought about color and all I knew and cared about was that she was my daughter and I was her dad. I guess my mind was simplistic beyond what someone might expect on such a topic. Years later, as racial tensions began flaring up, I did realize I needed to be more deliberately cognizant of how race could impact my kids, especially my son. In my kids had never had, in my, in my head, my kids never had anything to worry about regarding race or anything really, because I would be there to protect and handle and shield them no matter the scope. But now I realize that's fucking naive. So I mean, yeah, talk to me. I mean, as a, a, a white man, you know, making a daughter aware of the fact that she black, how do you cause have that conversation? Cause I've had a lot of African American guests and we even yeah, did an episode on what it means to be black and American. And some of the things you hear are just awful yeah you know, um and so how as a white man do you have this conversation with your daughter whose skin is not the same color as yours and at the same time knowing that you can never really quite understand what she's going
1: I I think it's a great question it's a it's a deep powerful question that probably is you know hours and hours of discussion um I don't know how effectively I could you know dive into it in 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 a short window but The best thing I could say is that my kids know that they have nothing but unconditional love and support. And I do believe that it's almost, and this may not make sense to people, it makes sense to me at least, and I do believe it makes sense to my kids, is I see things really both ways. I see my kids as my kids. They're part of me. I've never seen, and I talk about this in the book, I don't recognize a a difference between biological kids or adopted kids. Yeah. They're my kids. They're my everything. Um you know, I'll, I'll say all the time if someone looks at my kids and it's like, Oh my God, they're so gorgeous. I'll say they get it from their dad. You know, and I'm clearly referring to me. I don't stop and think that, Oh, I'm not, I'm not referencing their birth dad. I'm, I'm referencing me because I, it doesn't enter my mind. I mean, I'm their dad. They're my kids. And, and I really, and I think that that is good. And that's. That that works for us, and I, you know, I, I believe in that very much. I don't want my kids to ever pause and stop and think of, oh, but I'm adopted. Just like, you know, growing up, I never stopped and thought, oh, I'm biological. I, I just don't understand why people have a need to put labels on things to that effect. Having said that, I do recognize and understand that there are situations in life, and they're, they're all case by case, where, Certain kids who are adopted could have some type of a, a need for more information, more connectivity to their origins. And if that's the type of thing that a specific kid is, is reaching out for or needs, that's great. There's an opportunity to provide that and, and work through that with them. Um, there are biological kids who have a lot of unanswered questions within their own family. Um, and I think the same thing comes up with race. I, I I believe that you don't need to teach that, that the, the, the most important thing is, is don't teach people not to hate. Um, I think people are inherently born good. I don't think people are born into this world, seeing evil and inherently seeing differences in each other. That's something that we teach, and it's a big flaw in us as, as humanity. Some people take it much deeper and further than others, and 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 break it down by by race and all these you know other ways in an attempt just to be hurtful and divisive. And obviously exists, and it's it's horrible and it's heartbreaking and devastating, and one of the biggest failures of humanity that we collectively need to do a better job and constantly be fighting against. Having said that, it's it's easy to let that overcome and take over the reality of your everyday life. And I don't want that to happen with my kids. I want my kids to have common sense and understanding. I do recognize for sure that, and there, there's enough data on this, that you know, as my son gets older and depending on what area he might be in and what might be happening, there is a higher chance of him uh, being falsely accused or running into issues with, with with law enforcement, depending on various areas or situations, at least the way things are right now in certain parts of the country in certain areas. And that's devastating and heartbreaking. And I would be not doing him justice as his father if, as he ages, that I don't make him aware of those things. But for me, the answer is not teaching him to be disrespectful of law enforcement or to hate the police or to believe that the world is ganging up on him because I just don't believe that's true. Uh, I believe he has every opportunity in the world to, to be a survivor, victims and survivors, and my kids are survivors. Three of my four kids face near-death uh, experiences in their life medically, ver- very serious medical issues, and they're survivors. They are the strongest, toughest people I know. What I want to teach them and what I want for them is to focus on what unites them and what they have in common and what humanity has in common and how they can help grow and make the world a better place through their own actions. And of course, to stick up for themselves, to take care of themselves, to defend themselves, to not allow themselves to be taken advantage of. And when those situations, if those situations come up, I don't want them to be naive or turn a blind eye, but I also don't want them to be overly sensitive and and look for those situations around every corner when they very well may not be around every single corner. So it's a, it's a complex answer to a complex topic. Yeah. The one thing I've realized is you're never going to, uh, get an amen from everyone. People are so divided on the topic. And the truth is. I don't really give two fucks what other people think on the topic. They're my kids. You know, I'm the one who would jump in front of a car for them in a heartbeat. Uh, I'm the one that if anyone were to ever, you know, lay a hand on them, I'd be the one, you know, serving triple life for for killing the person who did that. Uh so there's no one who could possibly love my children and 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 be more invested in their health, wellness, and happiness than I am. It doesn't mean I'll get everything right in the course of their lives as their dad, but I'll always do everything in my power to be 100% honest and genuine and caring and loving and supportive. And all four of my kids are my heroes. They really are. They are my purpose uh, for everything in life. They they bring me such joy. Um that every day uh, I look forward to in my future is that I I get to have them in my life. And, you know, uh, one of my tattoos on my back is very enigmatic and it's a big piece towards the top, but it has four separate keys. And uh, those keys um, are representative of my kids. And there's a quote from Bob Marley um, that says, I I do not believe in, in death, not in flesh nor in spirit. Um, and I, I don't, you know, um, when, when I am no longer part of this earth and the world as we know it, my four magical miracle babies will be out there in the world, spreading their magic, spreading the joy that they do. And then their kids after them and their kids after them. And, and that goes back to the Pericles tattoo of, you know, what we leave behind is what is woven into the lives of others. And, um, that is my, my personal reminders daily to try to be a better person myself and do the right things to, to spread that into the world the best I can, as much as I come up short some days or a lot of days, um, you know, maybe if, if I get an A for anything, hopefully it's for effort.
0: I, I, one more question about your kids. And you mentioned people wanting to know about their origins. And I, I had a, a really good friend when I studied abroad in Brazil, who was adopted by a Danish family. Uh, and he was of Colombian origin, and he had spent years looking for his birth mother. And I remember he finally told me he found her, but I remember when we were in Brazil, he said, yeah, he said, the thing is, he was like, yeah, you know, it's kind of a landmine or our Pandora's box to open up because the Colombia is basically potentially sketchy. He said, for all I know, she could be a prostitute somewhere. Uh, we just don't know. And he did finally meet her. And I remember him feeling like he had so much clarity on his personality and why he was so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wonder, I mean, do your kids ask about their birth parents or are they ever curious about, you know, sort of where they come from and their origins and, and how do you handle that conversation?
1: Well, my three little ones are little. I mean, they're six and seven. So at the appropriate time when they're ready, you know, that's a conversation we'll have with them personally, private. And as far as my daughter at 15, I mean, it is, you know, I mean, I always say I'm an open book and I know that when you write a book and you mention your kids, then it's, it's a, it's a fair question. But I think that's probably one of the few things I'll just keep, you know, Understood. private for her to you know because it's it's her dynamic her relationship um i, I will say that and again every family is different but um you know I'll, our kids mannerisms um are and 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 the way they speak and i just I, you know, people will come up to us and, and it's, it's meant as a compliment. And this is what I mean about not being overly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think a lot of people can be overly sensitive, especially in today's day and age. A lot of times people are just making a comment about something that makes them feel good or, or happy. And so at times people will come up and they'll stop and they'll look at, you know, uh, myself and my kid's mom, who's, you know, also white and they'll see, you know, four black kids and they'll say, you know, I know this sounds weird, but your kids, look just like you guys. And I'll say it's it's not weird. I mean, they dress, you know, with our style. They have the same, you know, motions and habits and even facial expressions. You know, I look at my son all the time and my son walks in the door and I put down my work bag and take off my shoes. And the first thing he's been doing since age three is strapping on daddy's big leather work bag and dragging it across the floor and wearing daddy size, you know, 12, 13 shoes that with his tiny little feet and shuffling across the floor, trying to be daddy from age three. So of course, you know, your kids, you know, pick up your habits and and your style and who's picking out their clothes. You know, we are. So, you know, you're picking out clothing for your kids that kind of match your own sense of style. So uh, I, you know, when, when someone, obviously someone is saying, okay, here's kids that have black skin and white parents, but you look the same. They look like your kids. it, It is. I mean, that's where I think that we've just been trained the wrong way. Um, over centuries and centuries to see what is any type of difference versus all of the similarities. And it's just human nature. You, 99% of something can be, you know, one way and, and human nature at times tends to be, okay, I'm going to pick out the one thing that seems a little different and, and focus on that. And I, I, don't really understand it, but I just think it's a flaw within human nature in general. And, you know, I feel fortunate that it's not something ingrained in me or, or my kids. And, um, you know, so. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I want to finish with one final quote from the book, which is probably one of my favorite quotes from the book. And that, as you say, our skin is alive, just as the stories we write on it are very much alive. Those stories live and breathe with our massive casing or cellular sleeping bag shielded from public view. For some, like me, those stories are sprawled along the surface, a visual conversation piece with myself, arguments, celebrations, pep talks, and negotiations alike. Each tattoo might be a physical evolution or reinvention, but the transformation doesn't stop there. The moment the ink hits the flesh is just the beginning of the next chapter, Portal into a dialogue that is both recorded in permanent ink and forever retold and reinterpreted. Uh, Talk to me about that idea of Tattoos as a tool for evolution, reinvention, and transfer,
1: yeah, I mean it, look there's a an old saying that you know history is written by the victors um which goes back in time. You know, um, we read about Greek history and, and Roman conquests. Well, the, the people who won the battles wrote the history. <laughs> so they certainly can be written as glorious as you want. Uh, if you go to the Middle East, depending on what country you're in, the actual history of the Middle East is is written very differently in kids' history books, uh, depending on geographic location of where the kids are learning. So, again, history is written by the victors. Um, I, I like that conversation. Concept of tattooing. Uh, I like being in control and being able to uh, track my own history uh, and and chart my own future. I think it it requires you or allows you to be as real as you want with yourself and open and honest and raw and certainly it opens the door to bullshit yourself beyond belief that's a personal choice everyone makes with my tattoos i've tried to be very real uh and honest with myself almost painfully so at times not in a depressing sad way but i'm just a realist i i have always believed you know and understand the concept that you can't have hot without cold you can't have tall without short you know you're you're not going to have um good tasting food without things that taste bad. Otherwise you wouldn't understand the difference in the comparison. So I understand very much that there's going to be valleys in life and also peaks. And I talk about that a lot in the book and And you're not going to be able to reach the peaks. If there are no valleys, we can't have a world where there's nothing but peaks. Otherwise there is no such thing as peaks because there's nothing to be higher than if everything's a peak, then it's not special being up there. So coming to that reality, um, and, and understanding that has a lot to do with my philosophy of tattooing, which is being real with myself that not every single event in my life has been a, Oh, wow, this is effing amazing. Let's go get a tattoo. Um, it's not, but it's, it's my mindset is okay. But what do I do with that event to acknowledge it, to, to mark it, but also to learn from it and to heal from it and to, you know, if it's a peak or a valley, what do I do to get back to those peaks that are so much uh, special and, and joyful to be on top of? And and I say to people reading the book, you know, it's a, it's a book about self-analysis. It, there's a lot of motivational tips. There's a lot of, I don't want to say tips, but but examples, um, life lessons. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunities, I hope, that people can draw from. And I tried to do that in the most real Raw way as possible by highlighting my own failures and struggles just as much, if not even more so than my than my wins and victories. I, I did not want to write a a book about okay, I have this much in the bank, I own this many properties, and you know, uh, flying private to this place on this event and all that stuff. There have been enough books about that, um, and you know, honestly, those those are not for me anyway. Um, there's enough seminars you can go out there and spend. Money and have someone pop up for an hour and explain to you how you know you could never have to work again and follow their methodology and you know be a billionaire by next week you know and if that's that's what you're chasing or if that's what you need to fill you up there's plenty of those things out there I, I look at my book as as a much more real self-reflecting open honest journey that I do think can benefit people. And I think there's a lot of things people can pull things from for themselves. But I think one of the main things it does is it lets people nod and say, OK, so I'm not the only one out there that that has struggles at times. OK, everybody else's life that looks so magical and famous on the surface, they have issues, too. And that is something that I wanted to take head on because on the surface, you know, the majority of people who either look at me from a distance and even those who knew me well, you know, know me as this guy in, you know, Hollywood for the last 25 years and directing a list celebrities and commercials and, you know, making a lot of money and living in a beautiful homes by the beach and all these things. And, and a lot look, all of those things are true. Not a lot of them. All of them are true and and uh, a great business and all these different things. But it's disingenuous to, to not be honest about all the other shit that is present and mixed in with all of those things that are a constant and have been constant. And there's a word for it. It's called life. And uh, it's just it's the stuff people don't post on social media, you know, uh, and and aren't honest about. And I've, I felt really uh, compelled to be very open and honest about that in the book and on my skin. Amazing. Well, I have one
0: last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Unmistakable? Yeah. Authenticity. I think it's the most overused throwaway word that there is. I think I probably used it at times in my life without having two shreds of an understanding of what it really is and what it really meant. And I think you have to live uh, enough of a life to understand it. I think you have to get kicked in the teeth and kicked in the balls enough times and get back up and, and really take a look around and take a self inventory and, you know, make certain decisions about how you're going to live your life. And when you do that, it's not about telling people that you're authentic. It's people will know it, see it, feel it. It's, it's, it's in your aura. It's in the air. It's about you. It's, it's not something, uh, that you can claim. It's not a birthright. It's not something that you can buy or demand. It's something that you either earn and exists within you and emanates from you, or it doesn't. So I would say authenticity. Beautiful.
0: Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to?
1: I appreciate it. No, it's been great. The simplest way is go to our website, Dermdude, D-E-R-M-D-U-D-E. So Derm is in skin, dude, Dude. dot com, And we have our whole entire brand there, which is, yes, we have all of our products and things that we think are, are, are great, but we're not ramming stuff down your throat we have a great blog which is all written by myself and updated weekly and you know you'll see it's pretty raw stuff um you know there's not a lot of uh people selling uh, you know, like our three in one body wash where our headline on our website says proudly life is full of assholes. Don't smell like one. And uh, that's <laughs> how we promote our body wash. So we're pretty blunt about everything. You know, what you see is what you get. It's the New Jersey in me. And then through our website, you'll be able to uh, have a landing page about the book. The book is called Under My Skin. It does a pre-launch October 25th. And then does our full fledged launch uh, November 8th. So, uh, Derm Dude under my skin. And, you know, that's it. We're pretty easy to find.
0: Awesome. And for everybody
1: listening, we will
4: wrap the show with that. Planning for your next trip.